0: Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With this week in medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to my fellow brothers and sisters. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First, we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. A placebo-controlled trial of percutaneous coronary intervention for stable angina. Background. Percutaneous coronary intervention (PCI) is frequently performed to reduce the symptoms of stable angina. Whether PCI relieves angina more than a placebo procedure in patients who are not receiving antianginal medication remains unknown. Methods. We conducted a double blind, randomized, placebo controlled trial of PCI in patients with stable angina. Patients stopped all antianginal medications and underwent a two week symptom assessment phase before randomization. Patients were then randomly assigned in a one to one ratio to undergo PCI or a placebo procedure and were followed for 12 weeks. The primary endpoint was the angina symptom score which was calculated daily on the basis of the number of angina episodes that occurred on a given day, the number of antianginal medications prescribed on that day, and clinical events, including the occurrence of unblinding going to unacceptable angina or acute coronary syndrome or death. Scores range from 0 to 79, with higher scores indicating worse health status with respect to angina. Results. A total of 301 patients underwent randomization, 151 to the PCI group, and 150 to the placebo group. The mean, plus or minus, age was 64 plus or minus 9 years, and 79% were men. Ischemia was present in one cardiac territory in 242 patients, 80%, in two territories in 52 patients, 17%, and in three territories in 7 patients, 2%. In the target vessels, the median fractional flow reserve was 0.63 interquartile range 0.49 to 0.75 and the median instantaneous wave free ratio was 0.78 interquartile range 0.55 to 0.87 at the 12 week follow up the mean angina symptom score was 2.9 in the PCI group and 5.6 in the placebo group odds ratio 2.21 95% confidence interval 1.41 to 3.47 p less than 0.001. One patient in the placebo group had unacceptable angina leading to unblinding. Acute coronary syndromes occurred in four patients in the PCI group and in six patients in the placebo group. Conclusions Among patients with stable angina who were receiving little or no antianginal medication and had objective evidence of ischemia, PCI resulted in a lower angina symptom score than a placebo procedure indicating a better health status with respect to angina. Doxycycline prophylaxis to prevent sexually transmitted infections in women. Background. Doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis, PEP, has been shown to prevent sexually transmitted infections, STIs, among cisgender men and transgender women, but data from trials involving cisgender women are lacking. Methods We conducted a randomized, open label trial comparing doxycycline PEP, doxycycline hyclate, 200 mg taken within 72 hours after condomless sex, with standard care among Kenyan women 18 to 30 years of age who were receiving pre exposure prophylaxis against human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. The primary endpoint was any incident infection with Chlamydia trachomatis, Neisseria gonorrhea or Treponema pallidum. Hair samples were collected quarterly for objective assessment of doxycycline use. Results A total of 449 participants underwent randomization, 224 were assigned to the doxycycline PEP group and 225 to the standard care group. Participants were followed quarterly over 12 months. A total of 109 incident STIs occurred, 50 in the doxycycline PEP group, 25.1 per 100 person-years, and 59 in the standard care group, 29.0 per 100 person-years, with no significant between group difference in incidence, relative risk, 0.88, 95% confidence interval, c, 0.60 to 1.29, t equals 0.51. Among the 109 incident STIs, Chlamydia accounted for 85, 78.0%, 35 in the doxycycline PEP group and 50 in the standard care group, relative risk, 0.73, 95% C, 0.47 to 1.13. No serious adverse events were considered by the trial investigators to be related to doxycycline, and there were no incident HIV infections. Among 50 randomly selected participants in the doxycycline PEP group, doxycycline was detected in 58 of 200 HAIR samples, 29.0%. All in gonorrhea-positive isolates were resistant to doxycycline. Conclusions Among cisgender women, the incidence of STIs was not significantly lower with doxycycline PEP than with standard care. According to HAIR sample analysis, the use of doxycycline PEP among those assigned to receive it was low. Simbastatin in critically ill patients with COVID 19 background. The efficacy of simbastatin in critically ill patients with coronavirus disease 2019, COVID 19, is unclear. Methods In an ongoing international, multifactorial, adaptive platform, randomized, controlled trial, we evaluated simbastatin, 80 mg daily, as compared with no statin, control, in critically ill patients with COVID 19 who were not receiving statins at baseline. The primary outcome was respiratory and cardiovascular organ support-free days, assessed on an ordinal scale, combining in-hospital death, assigned a value of minus one, and days free of organ support through day 21 in survivors. The analysts used a Bayesian hierarchical ordinal model. The adaptive design included pre-specified statistical stopping criteria for superiority (greater than 99% posterior probability that the odds ratio was greater than one) and futility greater than 95% posterior probability that the odds ratio was less than 1.2. Results. Enrollment began on October 28, 2020. On January 8, 2023, enrollment was closed on the basis of a low anticipated likelihood that pre-specified stopping criteria would be met as COVID-19 cases decreased. The final analysis included 2,684 critically ill patients. The median number of organ support-free days was 11 interquartile range, minus 1 to 17, in the simvastatin group and 7 interquartile range, minus 1 to 16. In the control group, the posterior median adjusted odds ratio was 1.15, 95% credible interval, 0.98 to 1.34, for simvastatin as compared with control, yielding a 95.9% posterior probability of superiority. At 90 days, The hazard ratio for survival was 1.12, 95% credible interval, 0.95 to 1.32, yielding a 91.9% posterior probability of superiority of simbastatin. The results of secondary analyses were consistent with those of the primary analysis. Serious adverse events, such as elevated levels of liver enzymes and creatine kinase, were reported more frequently with simbastatin than with control. Conclusions Although recruitment was stopped because cases had decreased, among critically ill patients with COVID-19, simbastatin did not meet the pre-specified criteria for superiority to control. (music) Next article from Journal of American Medical Association Association Between Daily Toothbrushing and Hospital Acquired Pneumonia objective to determine whether daily toothbrushing is associated with lower rates of HAP and other patient-relevant outcomes. Data sources a search of PubMed, Embase, Cumulative Index to Nursing and Allied Health, Cochrane Central Register of Controlled Trials, Web of Science, Scopus, and three trial registries was performed from inception through March 9, 2023. Study selection randomized clinical trials of hospitalized adults comparing daily oral care with toothbrushing versus regimens without toothbrushing. Data extraction and synthesis data extraction and risk of bias assessments were performed in duplicate. Meta-analysis was performed using random effects models. Main outcomes and measures the primary outcome of this systematic review and meta-analysis was HAP. Secondary outcomes included hospital and intensive care unit, ICU, mortality, duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU and hospital lengths of stay, and use of antibiotics. Subgroups included patients who received invasive mechanical ventilation versus those who did not, toothbrushing twice daily versus more frequently, toothbrushing provided by dental professionals versus general nursing staff, electric versus manual toothbrushing, and studies at low versus high risk of bias. Results a total of 15 trials met inclusion criteria, including 10,742 patients, 20,33 in the ICU with 8,709 in non-ICU departments, effective population size was 2,786 after shrinking the population to account for one cluster randomized trial in non-ICU patients. Toothbrushing was associated with significantly lower risk for HAP, risk ratio RR 0.67, 95% C 0.56 to 0.81 and ICU mortality, RR 0.81, 95% C 0.69 to 0.95. Reduction in pneumonia incidence was significant for patients receiving invasive mechanical ventilation, RR 0.68, 95% C 0.57 to 0.82, but not for patients who were not receiving invasive mechanical ventilation, RR. C, 0.05 to 2.02. Toothbrushing for patients in the ICU was associated with fewer days of mechanical ventilation, mean difference, minus 1.24, 95% C, minus 2.42 to minus 0.06 days, and a shorter ICU length of stay, mean difference, minus 1.78, 95% C, minus 2.85 to minus 0.70 days. Brushing twice a day versus more frequent intervals was associated with similar effect estimates. Results were consistent in a sensitivity analysis restricted to 7 studies at low risk of bias, 1,367 patients. Non-ICU hospital length of stay and use of antibiotics were not associated with toothbrushing. Conclusions The findings of this systematic review and meta-analysis suggest that daily toothbrushing may be associated with significantly lower rates of HAP particularly in patients receiving mechanical ventilation, lower rates of ICU mortality, shorter duration of mechanical ventilation, and shorter ICU length of stay. Policies and programs encouraging more widespread and consistent toothbrushing are warranted. (music) Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine Inappropriate prescribing to older patients by nurse practitioners and primary care physicians. Background. Many U.S. states have legislated to allow nurse practitioners, NPs, to independently prescribe drugs. Critics contend that these moves will adversely affect quality of care. Objective. To compare rates of inappropriate prescribing among NPs and primary care physicians. Design. Rates of inappropriate prescribing were calculated and compared for 23669 NPs and 5060 primary care physicians who wrote prescriptions for 100 or more patients per year, with adjustment for practice experience, patient volume and risk, clinical setting, year and state. Setting. 29 states that had granted NPs prescriptive authority by 2019. Patients. Medicare Part D beneficiaries aged 65 years or older in 2013-2019. Measurements Inappropriate prescriptions, defined as drugs that typically should not be prescribed for adults aged 65 years or older, according to the American Geriatric Society's Beers Criteria. Results Mean rates of inappropriate prescribing by NPs and primary care physicians were virtually identical, adjusted odds ratio, 0.99, 95% 95% C 0.97 to 1.01 crude rates 1.63 versus 1.69 per 100 prescriptions adjusted rates 1.66 versus 1.68 however np's were overrepresented among clinicians with the highest and lowest rates of inappropriate prescribing for both types of practitioners discrepancies in inappropriate prescribing rates across states tended to be larger than discrepancies between these practitioners within states Limitation. The Beers criteria addresses the appropriateness of a selected subset of drugs and may not be valid in some clinical settings. Conclusion. Nurse practitioners were no more likely than physicians to prescribe inappropriately to older patients. Broad efforts to improve the performance of all clinicians who prescribe may be more effective than limiting independent prescriptive authority to physicians. Next article from Nature Medicine. The infant gut virome is associated with preschool asthma risk independently of bacteria. Bacteriophage, also known as phage, communities that inhabit the gut have a major effect on the structure and functioning of bacterial populations, but their roles and association with health and disease in early life remain unknown. Here, we analyze the gut virome of 647 children aged one year from the Copenhagen Prospective Studies on Asthma in Childhood 2010, Copsac 2010, Mother-Child Cohort, all deeply phenotyped from birth and with longitudinally assessed asthma diagnoses. Specific temperate gut phage taxa were found to be associated with later development of asthma. In particular, the joint abundances of 19 caudoviral families were found to significantly contribute to this association. Combining the asthma-associated virum and bacterium signatures had additive effects on asthma risk, implying an independent virum-asthma association. Moreover, the virum-associated asthma risk was modulated by the host TLR9RS187084 gene variant, suggesting a direct interaction between phages and the host immune system. Further studies will elucidate whether phages, alongside bacteria and host genetics, can be used as preclinical biomarkers for asthma. Next article from Lancet. Ubregepind for the treatment of migraine attacks during the prodrome, a phase 3, multicenter, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, crossover trial in the USA background. Ubregepind is a calcitonin gene-related peptide, CGRP, receptor antagonist that is approved for acute treatment of migraine. The aim of this trial was to evaluate the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of Ubregepint 100 mg compared with placebo for the acute treatment of migraine when administered during the prodrome. Methods This prodrome trial was a phase 3, multicenter, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, crossover trial of Ubregepint 100 mg conducted at 75 research centers and headache clinics in the USA. Eligible participants were adults aged 18 to 75 years who had at least a one-year history of migraine with or without aura and a history of two to eight migraine attacks per month with moderate to severe headache in each of the three months before screening. Mm -hmm. Eligible participants were randomly assigned, one-to-one, to either receive placebo to treat the first qualifying prodrome event and ubergepint 100 mg to treat the second qualifying prodrome event or to receive ubergepint 100 mg to treat the first qualifying prodrome event and placebo to treat the second qualifying prodrome event. He primary endpoint was absence of moderate or severe intensity headache within 24 hours after study drug dose. Efficacy analyzes were conducted with the modified intention to treat, myth, population defined as all randomly assigned participants with at least one headache assessment within 24 hours after taking the study drug during the treatment period. The safety population included all treated participants who took at least one administration of study drug. The trial is registered with clinicaltrials.gov, NCT 04492020. Findings Between August 21, 2020 and April 19, 2022, 518 participants were randomly assigned to double-blind crossover treatment. The safety population included 480 participants and the MIT population included 477 participants, 421, 88%, of 480 participants were female and 59, 12%, were male. Absence of moderate or severe headache within 24 hours after a dose occurred after 190, of 418 qualifying prodrome events that had been treated with Ubergepent, and after 121, 29%, of 423 qualifying prodrome events that had been treated with placebo, odds ratio 2 middle.09, 95% C1 middle.63 to 2 middle.69, P0 middle.0001. Adverse events that occurred within 48 hours after study drug administration were reported after 77, of 456 qualifying prodrome events that had been treated with ubregepint, and after 55, 12%, of 462 events that had been treated with placebo. Interpretation. Ubregepint was effective and well tolerated for the treatment of migraine attacks when taken during the prodrome. (coughs) Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology Oral solinexor is maintenance therapy after first-line chemotherapy for advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer. Purpose Solinexor inhibits exportin-1, XBO1, resulting in nuclear accumulation of tumor suppressor proteins including p53 and his clinical activity in endometrial cancer, EC. The primary endpoint was to assess progression-free survival, PFS, with once-weekly oral selinexor in patients with advanced or recurrent EC. Patients and Methods Engit EN5-GOG-3055-Sanda was a randomized, prospective, multicenter, double-blind, placebo-controlled, phase 3 study at 107 sites in 10 countries. Patients 18 years or older with histologically confirmed EC were enrolled all had completed a single line of at least 12 weeks of taxon-platinum combination chemotherapy and achieved partial or complete response. Patients were assigned to receive 80 mg oral solenexer once weekly or placebo with 2-to-1 random assignment, clinicaltrials.gov identifier, NCT 03555422. Results Between January 2018 and December 2021, 263 patients were randomly assigned, with 174 allocated to Selinexer and 89 to placebo. The median PFS was 5.7 months, 95% C, 3.81 to 9.20, with Selinexer versus 3.8 months, 95% C, 3.68 to 7.39, with placebo, hazard ratio, HR, 0.76, 95% C, 0.54 to 1.08 two-sided P equals 0.126, which did not meet the criteria for statistical significance in the intent to treat population. Incorrect chemotherapy response stratification data for 7, 2.7 percent patients were identified. In a pre-specified exploratory analysis of PFS in audited stratification data, PFS for CELINEXER met the threshold for statistical significance, HR, 0.71, 95 percent C, 0.499 to 0.996, two-sided P equals 0.049. Furthermore, patients with the TP53 wild type, weight, EC had a median PFS of 13.7 and 3.7 months with solenexer and placebo. The most common grade 3 treatment-related adverse events were nausea, 9%, neutropenia, 9%, and thrombocytopenia, 7%. Conclusion The significance level for PFS was only met in the audited analysis. However, a preliminary analysis of a pre-specified exploratory subgroup of patients with TP53WTEC showed promising results with Solenexer Maintenance Therapy. (music) Next article from Journal of Hepatology. Progression of Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease and Long-Term Outcomes, a Nationwide Paired Liver Biopsy Cohort Study. Background and Aims More data are needed regarding the long-term impact of the histological progression of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD, on long-term outcomes, including end-stage liver disease, ESLD, and mortality. Methods we included Swedish adults with biopsy-confirmed non-serotic NAFLD and greater than or equal to two liver biopsies greater than six months apart, 1969 to 2017, and equal 718. NAFLD was categorized at initial biopsy as simple stetosis, non-fibrotic steatohepatitis, NASH, or non-serotic fibrosis. NAFLD progression was defined by histological changes between biopsies, i.e. incident NASH, incident fibrosis, fibrosis progression, cirrhosis. Using Cox regression, we estimated multivariable adjusted hazard ratios, R's, and 95% C's for incident ESLD, i.e. hospitalization for decompensated cirrhosis, hepatocellular carcinoma or liver transplantation, and mortality, according to NAFL progression versus stable slash regressed disease. Results. At initial biopsy, 497 patients, 69.2%, 69.2%, had simple stetosis, 90, 12.5%, had non-fibrotic NASH, and 131, 18.2%, had non-serotic fibrosis. Over a median of 3.4 years between biopsies, 30.4%, 218-718, experienced NAFLD progression, including 12.5%, 62-497, with incident non-fibrotic NASH, 24.0%, 141-587, with incident fibrosis, and 5.6%, 4718, with cirrhosis. Compared to stable-slash-regressed disease, NAVL progression was associated with significantly higher rates of developing incident ESLD, 23.8 versus 11. 4 one-thousandths person-years, pi, difference equals 12. 4 one pi, are 1.65, 95% C1.17 to 2.32. While the highest ESLD incidence occurred with progression to cirrhosis, difference versus stable slash regress disease equals 56.31,000 pi. Significant excess risk was also found with earlier transitions, including from simple steatosis to incident fibrosis, difference versus stable slash regress disease equals 18.91/1000 pi. In contrast, all-cause mortality rates did not appear to differ when NAFLD progression was compared to stable-slash-regressed disease, difference equals 4.7 pi, R0.99, 95% C0.78 to 1.24. Conclusions. In a nationwide, real-world cohort of patients with paired NAFLD biopsies, histological disease progression contributed to significantly higher rates of developing incident ESLD but did not appear to impact all-cause mortality. (music) Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology The overlap subgroup of functional dyspepsia exhibits more severely impaired gastric and autonomic functions. Goals A combination of multiple tests was introduced to non-invasively investigate the differences in pathophysiologies among functional dyspepsia, FD, subgroups, including postprandial distress syndrome, PDS, epigastric pain syndrome, EPS, and overlap. Background It has not been extensively evaluated whether different pathophysiologies are involved in FD subgroups. Study This multicenter study included 364 FT patients fulfilling Rome 4 criteria and 47 healthy controls. A combined non-invasive gastric and autonomic function test was performed, the electrogastrogram and electrocardiogram were recorded simultaneously in the fasting state and after a drink test. Symptoms after drinking were recorded using visual analog scale. Results 1. Compared with HC- FD patients showed a decreased maximum tolerable volume, MTV, P less than 0.01, and percentage of normal gastric slow waves, normal gastric slow waves, percent NSW, P less than 0.01, and increased post drinking symptoms, anxiety, P less than 0.01, and depression, P less than 0.01. The drink reduced percent NSW in both FD patients and HC. However, the effect was more potent in patients. 2. The PDS and overlap groups displayed a reduced MTV, P less than 0.05. The overlap group exhibited a higher symptom score at 30 minutes after drinking, and higher anxiety and depression scores, and a higher sympathobical ratio than the EPS, P less than 0.05 for all, and PDS, P less than 0.01 for all. 3. In the PDS subgroup, the MTV, postprandial sympathomical ratio and depression were associated with the overall dyspepsia symptom scale, DSS, P equals 0.034, 0.021, 0.043, respectively. No significant associations were found in the other two subgroups. Conclusions The combination of multiple tests can detect pathophysiological abnormalities in FD patients. Overall, patients with overlap symptoms display more severe pathophysiologies. Effective premedication with proneness before upper gastrointestinal endoscopy, a multicenter prospective randomized controlled study. Objectives This study aimed to confirm whether premedication with PRONUS before endoscopy improves mucosal visualization and increases precancerous lesion and cancer lesion detection rates. Materials and Methods From June 2018 to April 2019, outpatients scheduled for endoscopy from 13 hospitals were screened to be randomly allocated in a 2 to 1 ratio to premedication with PRONUS, Group A, and Water, Group B. The primary endpoint was mucosal visibility scores, and the secondary endpoint was precancerous and cancer lesion detection rates. This trial was registered at Chinese Clinical Trial Registry, and the registration number was CHICTER-1800016853. Results Group A showed significantly lower mucosal visibility scores, better mucosal visibility, of esophagus, stomach, and duodenum than group B with all p-values less than 0.001. The overall cancer detection rates between group A and group B were 0.83 and 1.08%, and overall detection rates of precancerous and cancer lesion were 4.4 and 4.9%, both without significant difference, P equals 1.000 and 0.824. In addition, the flushing volume, milliliter, of group A, 10.52 plus or minus 23.41, was less than group B, plus or minus 52.11, p less than 0.001, and the flushing frequency of Group A, 0.46 plus or minus 1.01, was fewer than Group B, 1.62 plus or minus 2.12, p less than 0.001. Conclusions: Pre-medication with Pronus could achieve better mucosal visibility and decrease flushing frequency and volume, but may not increase lesion detection rates. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases Remdesivir reduced mortality in immunocompromised patients hospitalized for COVID-19 across variant waves, findings from routine clinical practice. Background Immunocompromised patients are at high risk of severe coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19, and death, yet treatment strategies for immunocompromised patients hospitalized for COVID-19 reflect variations in clinical practice. In this comparative effectiveness study, we investigated the effect of remdesivir treatment on inpatient mortality among immunocompromised patients hospitalized for COVID-19 across all variants of concern, BOC, periods. Methods Data for immunocompromised patients hospitalized for COVID-19 between December 2020 and April 2022 were extracted from the U.S. Pink Aim Healthcare Database. Patients who received remdesivir within two days of hospitalization were matched one-to-one using propensity score matching to patients who did not receive remdesivir. Additional matching criteria included admission month, age group, and hospital. COX proportional hazards models were used to examine the effect of remdesivir on risk of 14 and 28-day mortality during VOC periods. Results A total of 19184 remdesivir patients were matched to 11213 non-remdesivir patients. Overall, 11.1% and 17.7% of remdesivir patients died within 14 and 28 days, respectively, compared with 15.4% and 22.4% of non-remdesivir patients. Remdesivir was associated with a reduction in mortality at 14, hazard ratio, HR, 0.70. 95% confidence interval, 0.62. 78 and 28 days, HR, 0.75, 95% C, 0.68. 83. The survival benefit remains significant during the pre-Delta, Delta, delta, and Omicron periods. Conclusions. Prompt initiation of remdesivir in immunocompromised patients hospitalized for COVID-19 is associated with significant survival benefit across all variant waves. These findings provide much-needed evidence relating to the effectiveness of a foundational treatment for hospitalized COVID-19 patients among a high-risk population. (music) Paracoronary adipose tissue density, inflammation, and subclinical coronary artery disease among people with HIV in the reprieve cohort. Background paracoronary adipose tissue, PCAT, may influence plaque development through inflammatory mechanisms. We assess PCAT density as a measure of paracoronary inflammation in relationship to coronary plaque among people with human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, PWH, and to a matched control population. Methods In this baseline analysis of 727 participants of the randomized trial to prevent vascular events in HIV, mechanistic substudy: we related computed tomography-derived PCAT density to presence and extent, Lehman score, of coronary artery disease, CAD, non-calcified plaque, coronary artery calcium, CAC, and vulnerable plaque features using multivariable logistic regression analyzes. We further compared the PCAT density between PWH and age, sex, body mass index, CAC score, and statin used match controls from the community-based Framingham Heart Study, and equals 464, adjusting for relevant clinical covariates. Results. Among 727 reprieve participants, age 50.8 plus or minus 5.8 years, 83.6%, 608-727 male, PCAT density was higher in those with, versus without, coronary plaque, non-calcified plaque, CAC greater than 0, vulnerable plaque, and high CAD burden, Lehman score greater than 5, p less than 0.001 for each comparison. PCAT density related to prevalent coronary plaque, adjusted odds ratio, per 10 who, 1.44, 95% confidence interval, 1.22 to 1.70, p less than 0.001, adjusted for clinical cardiovascular risk factors, body mass index, and systemic immune-slash-inflammatory biomarkers. Similarly, PCAT density related to CAC greater than 0, non-calcified plaque, vulnerable plaque and Lehman score greater than 5, all P less than or equal to 0.002. PCAT density was greater among reprieve participants versus Framingham heart study, minus 88.2 plus or minus 0.5 who versus minus 90.6 plus or minus 0.4 who, P less than 0.001. Conclusions. Among PWH in reprieve, a large primary cardiovascular disease prevention cohort increased PCAT density independently associated with prevalence and severity of coronary plaque, linking increased coronary inflammation to CAD in PWH. (music) Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Barriers and Solutions for Pediatric Rheumatology Referrals in a Rural Area, Physician Survey Results from Montana State. Background Currently, there are nine states across the United States that do not have a pediatric rheumatologist, including the state of Montana. Patients in these states are often cared for by outreach clinics staffed by pediatric rheumatology, PR, providers from other states or looked after by in-state adult rheumatologists, or in-state primary care providers. Methods Using a web based survey, we determined barriers and potential solutions to PR referrals from referring providers, including primary care providers and subspecialists, in Montana State. Results 85 Montana referring providers responded, with 44% being pediatric physicians and 33% being family medicine physicians. Other respondents were adult rheumatologists, pediatric and family medicine advanced practice providers. Orthopedic surgeons, and pediatric subspecialists. 85% of providers had previously referred a patient to PR. Referring providers rated difficulty referring Mount patients to PR as 27, on a linear numeric scale of 0 to 100, with 0 being very difficult, and noted lack of access to local pediatric rheumatologist as the most significant barrier to referral. The top patient barrier, as perceived by 95% of providers, was travel time. Potential solutions to improve care included presence of local pediatric rheumatologist with 50 miles, development of algorithms for common PR complaints, and outreach clinics. Conclusion Referring providers in Montana report difficulty in referring to PR, with lack of access and travel time being key barriers. Improving access through expanding local PR workforce and increasing access through outreach clinics may help reduce these barriers. Next article from arthritis and rheumatology. Relation of intra-articular mineralization to knee pain in knee osteoarthritis, a longitudinal analysis in the most study. Objective. Intra-articular, ya, calcium crystal deposition is common in knee osteoarthritis, OA, but of unclear significance. It is possible that low-grade, crystal-related inflammation may contribute to knee pain. We examined the longitudinal relation of computed tomography, CT detected yaw mineralization to the development of knee pain. Methods We used data from the National Institutes of Health-funded longitudinal multi-center osteoarthritis study. Participants had knee radiographs and bilateral knee CTs at baseline, and pain assessments every eight months for two years. CT images were scored using the Boston University Calcium Knee Score we longitudinally examined the relation of CT detected yaw mineralization to the risk of frequent knee pain, FKP, intermittent or constant knee pain worsening, and pain severity worsening using generalized linear mixed effects models. Results. We included 2,093 participants, mean age 61 years, 57% women, mean body mass index 28.8 kg m2. Overall, 10.2% of knees had yaw mineralization. The presence of any yaw mineralization in the cartilage was associated with 2.0 times higher odds of having FKP, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.38 to 2.78, and 1.86 times more frequent intermittent or constant pain, 95% C1.20 to 2.78 with similar results seen for the presence of any yaw mineralization in the meniscus or joint capsule. A higher burden of yaw mineralization anywhere within the knee was associated with a higher odds of all pain outcomes, odds ratio range from 2.14 to 2.21. Conclusion. CT detected yaw mineralization was associated with risk of having more frequent, persistent, and worsening knee pain over two years. Targeting yaw mineralization may have therapeutic potential for pain improvement in (music) knee. Next article from Circulation. Dapagliflozin and apparent treatment-resistant hypertension in heart failure with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction, the DELIVER trial. Background. Apparent treatment-resistant hypertension, Ater is prevalent and associated with adverse outcomes in heart failure with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction. Less is known about the potential role of sodium-glucose co-transporter 2 inhibition in this high-risk population. In this post-hoc analysis of the DELIVER trial, dapagliflozin evaluation to improve the lives of patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure, we evaluated clinical profiles and treatment effects of dapagliflozin among participants with ater. Methods: the liver participants were categorized on the basis of baseline blood pressure, BP, with ATR defined as BP greater than or equal to 140-90mm Hg, greater than or equal to 130-80mm Hg of diabetes, despite treatment with three antihypertensive drugs including a diuretic. Non-resistant hypertension was defined as BP above threshold but not meeting a true criteria. Controlled BP was defined as BP under threshold. Incidence of the primary outcome, cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure event, key secondary outcomes, and safety events was assessed by baseline BP category. Results Among 6,263 deliver participants, 3,766, 60.1%, had controlled BP, 1779, 28.4%, had non-resistant hypertension, and 718, 11.5% had a TRA at baseline. Participants with a had more cardiometabolic comorbidities and tended to have higher left ventricular ejection fraction and worse kidney function. Rates of the primary outcome were 8.7 per 100 patient years in those with controlled BP, 8.5 per 100 patient years in the non-resistant hypertension group, and 9.5 per 100 patient years in the ATRA group. Relative treatment benefits of dapagliflozin versus placebo on the primary outcome were consistent across BP categories. P-interaction equals 0.114. Participants with TER exhibited the greatest absolute reduction in the rate of primary events with dapagliflozin, 4.1 per 100 patient years, compared with non-resistant hypertension, 2.7 per 100 patient years, and controlled BP, 0.8 per 100 patient years. Irrespective of assigned treatment, Participants with a TR experienced a higher rate of reported vascular events, including myocardial infarction and stroke, over study follow-up. Dapagliflozin modestly reduced systolic BP by 1-3 to mmHg, without increasing risk of hypotension, hypovolemia, or other serious adverse events, irrespective of BP category, but did not improve the proportion of participants with a TR attaining goal BP over time. Conclusions ATER was identified in greater than 1 in 10 patients with heart failure and left ventricular ejection fraction greater than 40% in deliver. Dapagliflozin consistently improved clinical outcomes and was well-tolerated, including among those with (music) ETR. Next article from American College of Cardiology Semaglutide Effects on Cardiovascular Outcomes in People with Overweight or Obesity Description The goal of the trial was to determine the association of subcutaneous semiglutide, a glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist, GLP-1-RA, with cardiovascular, CV, events in a secondary prevention cohort of patients with overweight or obesity and prior CV disease, CBD, without diabetes mellitus, DM. Study Design Randomized International Multi-Centered Double-Blind Placebo Controlled Patients with overweight or obesity, body mass index, BMI, greater than or equal to 27 kg slash M2, and established CVD were randomized to receive once-weekly subcutaneous semaglutide, N equals 8,803, versus placebo, N equals 8,801 semaglutide was initiated at 0.24 mg once weekly and increased every 4 weeks as tolerated until the target 2.4 mg weekly or maximally tolerated dose was reached. Total number of enrollees 17,604. Mean duration of follow-up 40 months. Mean patient age 62 years. Percentage female 28%. Inclusion criteria. Age greater than or equal to 45 years. BMI greater than or equal to 27 kg M2. Prior myocardial infarction, MI, stroke, or peripheral arterial disease with claudication and ankle brachial index less than 0.85, prior revascularization or amputation. Exclusion criteria. Me, unstable angina, stroke, or transient ischemic attack less than or equal to 60 days prior. NEHA 4 Heart Failure Symptoms History of DM or Hemoglobin a one ca V1c, greater than or equal to 6. 5% End-stage renal disease or dialysis requirement Mean exposure to target semaglutide dose, 33 months Principal Findings The primary outcome, composite of CV death, non-fatal me, and non-fatal stroke, for semaglutide versus placebo, was 6.5% versus 8.0% hazard ratio HR 0.80. Pre-specified subgroup analyses of the primary outcome for semaglutide vs. placebo. hubba one c less than 5.7% versus greater than or equal to 5.7%, HR0.82, 95% C0.68 to 1.0 versus HR0.79. 95% C0.69 to 0.90 secondary outcomes for semaglutide versus placebo. CV death, 2.5% versus 3.0%, HR0.85, 95% C0.71 to 1.01, P equals 0.07 C V death or HF hospitalization, 3.4% versus 4.1%, HR0.82 95% C 0.71 to 0.96 all cause death, 4.3% versus 5.2%, HR 0.81. 95% C 0.71 to 0.93 non fatal me, 2.7% versus 3.7%, HR 0.72. 95% C 0.61 to 0.85 all serious adverse events, 33.4% versus 36.4%. P less than 0.001 Adverse events leading to trial drug discontinuation, 16.6% versus 8.2%, P less than 0.001 Gastrointestinal GI complications, 10.0% versus 2.0%, P less than 0.001 Acute pancreatitis, 0.2% versus 0.3%, P equals 0.28 Acute kidney failure. 1.9% versus 2.3%, P equals 0.13. Interpretation In patients with overweight or obesity and established CVD without DM, once-weekly subcutaneous semiglutide was associated with a 20% reduction in major adverse cardiac events during a mean exposure period of 33 months. This benefit was observed even in the setting of widespread concurrent statin use. Steady drug discontinuation was twice as common in the semaglutide arm and was primarily due to gastrointestinal intolerance, a known side effect of GLP-1-RAs. Other serious adverse effects were largely similar or less frequent with semaglutide. (music) From Journals of the American College of Cardiology lipoprotein A and risks of peripheral artery disease, abdominal aortic aneurysm, and major adverse limb events. Background LPA, lipoprotein A-lowering therapy to reduce cardiovascular disease is under investigation in Phase 3 clinical trials. High LPA may be implicated in peripheral artery disease, PAD, abdominal aortic aneurysms, AAAs, and major adverse limb events, M-A-L-E. Objectives The authors investigated the association of high LPA levels and corresponding LPA genotypes with risk of PAD, AAA, and male methods. The authors included 108,146 individuals from the Copenhagen General Population Study. During follow-up, 2,450 developed PAD and 1,251 AAAs. Risk of male was assessed in individuals with PAD at baseline and replicated in the Copenhagen City Heart Study. Results Higher LPA was associated with a stepwise increase in risk of PAD and AAA, P for trend less than 0.001. For individuals with LPA levels greater than or equal to 99TH, greater than or equal to 143MG-DL, greater than or equal to 307 mmol/L versus less than 50th percentile, less than or equal to 9 mg DL, less than or equal to 17 mL L, multivariable adjusted HRs were 2.99, 95% C, 2.09 to 4.30, for PAD and 2.22, 95% C, 1.21 to 4.07, for AAA. For individuals with PAD, the corresponding incidence rate ratio for male was 3.04, 95% C, 1.55 to 5.98. Per 50 mg/dl, 105 ml/l, genetically higher LPA risk ratios were 1.39, 95% c, 1.24 to 1.56, for PAD, and 1.21, 95% c, 1.01 to 1.44, for AAA, consistent with observational risk ratios of 1.33, 95% c, to 1.43, and 1.27, 95% C, 1.15 to 1.41, respectively. In women smokers aged 70 to 79 years with LP a less than 50th and greater than or equal to 99th percentile, absolute 10-year risks of PAD were 8% and 21%, and equivalent risks in men 11% and 29%, respectively. For AAA, Corresponding risks were 2% and 4% in women, and 5% and 12% in men. Conclusions High LPA levels increased risk of PAD, AAA, and male by 2-3 fold in the general population, opening opportunities for prevention given future LPA-lowering therapies. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Association between insulin resistance and myostatosis measured by abdominal computed tomography. Objective. This work aimed to evaluate the association between insulin resistance and myostatosis in a large Asian population. Methods. A total of 18251 participants who had abdominal computed tomography were included in this cross-sectional study. Patients were categorized into four groups according to quartiles of homeostatic model assessment for insulin resistance, HOMA-IR. The total abdominal muscle area, TAMA, at the L3 vertebral level was segmented into normal attenuation muscle area, NAMA, low attenuation muscle area, LAMA, and intermuscular adipose tissue, IMAT. The absolute values of TAMA, NAMA, LAMA, and IMAT and the ratios of NAMA-BMI, LAMA-BMI, and NAMA-TAMA were used as myostetosis indices. Results The absolute values of TAMA, NAMA, LAMA, and AMAT appeared to increase with higher HOMA-IR levels, and LAMA-BMI showed a similar upward trend. Meanwhile, the NAMA-BMI and NAMA-TAMA index showed downward trends. As HOMA-IR levels increased, the odds ratios, ORS, of the highest quartile of NAMA-BMI and NAMA-TAMA index decreased, and that of LAMA-BMI increased. Compared with the lowest HOMA-IR group, the adjusted ORS, 95% C, in the highest HOMA-IR group for the lowest NAMA-TAMA quartile were 0.414, 0.364-0.471 to 0.471 in men and 0.464, 0.384-0.562 in women. HOMA IR showed a negative correlation with NAMA slash BMI, R equals minus 0.233 for men, and R equals minus 0.265 for women, and NAMA slash TAMA index, R equals minus 0.211 for men, and R equals minus 0.214 for women, and a positive correlation with LAMA slash BMI, R equals 0.160 for men and R equals 0.119 for women, P was less than 0.001 for all. Conclusion In this study, a higher HOMA-IR level was significantly associated with a high risk of myastetosis <music> The Glucose Challenge Test in Pregnancy Identifies Future Risk of Diabetes Objective We hypothesize that the Antenatal Screening Glucose Challenge Test, GCT, should predict future diabetes risk and, if so, would have thresholds that identify the same degree of risk as the diagnosis of prediabetes on postpartum measurement of A1c. Methods With population-based administrative databases, we identified all women in Ontario, Canada, who had a GCT in pregnancy with delivery between January 2007 and December 2017, followed by measurement of A1c and fasting glucose within two years postpartum, and equals 141-858, including 19034 with GDM. Women were followed over a median of 3.5 years for the development of diabetes. Results. Under the assumption of a linear exposure effect, the one-hour post-challenge glucose concentration on the GCT was associated with an increased likelihood of developing diabetes, hazard ratio 1.39, 95% c 1.38 to 1.40 a GCT threshold of 8.0 millimoles slash L predicted the same 5-year risk of diabetes, 6.0%, 95% C, 5.8 to 6.2, as postpartum A1C 5.7%, identifying prediabetes. Moreover, in women with GDM, a GCT threshold of 9.8 millimoles slash L equaled prediabetes on postpartum A1C and predicting a 5-year risk of diabetes of 16.5%. 14.8 to 18.2. Conclusion. The GCT offers predictive capacity for future diabetes in pregnant women. In women with GDM, this insight could identify those at highest risk of diabetes, toward whom postpartum screening efforts should be most strongly directed. Next article from Neurology Association of Spinal Cord Atrophy and Brain Paramagnetic Rim Lesions with Progression Independent of Relapse Activity in People with Mississippi Background and Objectives Progression Independent of Relapse Activity, PIRA, is a crucial determinant of overall disability accumulation in multiple sclerosis, MS. Accelerated brain atrophy has been shown in patients experiencing Pira. In this study, We assessed the relation between PIRA neurodegenerative processes reflected by 1. Longitudinal spinal cord atrophy and 2. Brain paramagnetic rim lesions, PRLs. Besides, the same relationship was investigated in progressive MS, PMS. Last, we explored the value of cross-sectional brain and spinal cord volumetric measurements in predicting PIRA. Methods From an ongoing multicentric cohort study, we selected patients with MS with 1. Availability of a susceptibility-based MRI scan and 2. Regular clinical and conventional MRI follow-up in the four years before the susceptibility-based MRI. Comparisons in spinal cord atrophy rates, explored with linear mixed effect models, and PRL count, explored with negative binomial regression models, were performed between 1. Relapsing-remitting, RRMS and PMS phenotypes and Two patients experiencing PIRA and patients without confirmed disability accumulation (CDA) during follow-up, both considering the entire cohort and the subgroup of patients with RRMS. Associations between baseline MRI volumetric measurements and time to PIRA were explored with multivariable Cox regression analyses. Results: In total, 445 patients with MS, 64.9% female, mean SD age at baseline 45.0, 11.4, years, 11.2% with PMS, were enrolled. Compared with patients with RRMS, those with PMS had accelerated cervical cord atrophy, mean difference in annual percentage volume change, MDAPC, minus 1.41, P equals 0.004, and higher PRL load, incidence rate ratio, IRR, 1.93. P equals 0.005. Increased spinal cord atrophy, MDAPC 1.39, P equals 0.0008, and PRL burden, IRR 1.95, P equals 0.0008, were measured in patients with PIRAC compared with patients without CDA. Such differences were also confirmed when restricting the analysis to patients with RRMS. Baseline volumetric measurements of the cervical cord, whole brain, and cerebral cortex significantly predicted time to PRA, all P less than or equal to 0.002. Discussion Our results show that PRI is associated with both increased spinal cord atrophy and PRL burden, and this association is evident also in patients with RRMS. These findings further point to the need to develop targeted treatment strategies for Pira to prevent irreversible neuroaxonal loss and optimize long-term outcomes of patients with MIS. (music) Next article from CHEST Association between ROME classification among hospitalized patients with COPD exacerbations and short-term and intermediate-term outcomes. Background Recently, the ROME proposal updated the definition of exacerbation of COPD a However, such severity grade has not yet demonstrated intermediate-term clinical relevance. Research Question what is the association between the Rome severity classification and short term and intermediate term clinical outcomes? Study design and methods. We retrospectively grouped hospitalized patients with a COPT according to the Rome severity classification e. mild, moderate, severe. Baseline, clinical, microbiologic, gas analysis, and laboratory variables were collected. In addition, data about the length of hospital stay and mortality in-hospital and a follow-up timeline from 6 months until 3 years were assessed. Results Of the 347 hospitalized patients, 39% were categorized as mild, 31% were categorized as moderate, and 30% were categorized as severe. Overall, patients with severe ACOPT had an extended length of hospital stay. Although in-hospital mortality was similar among groups, patients with severe ACOP presented a worse prognosis in all follow-up time points. The kaplan meier curves show the role of the severe classification in the cumulative survival at 1 and 3 years, gihan breslow wilcoxon test, P equals 0.032 and P equals 0.004, respectively. The multivariable COX regression analysis showed a higher risk of death at 1 year when patients presented a severe, hazard ratio, 1.99, 95% C., 1.49 to 2.65, or moderate grade, hazard ratio, 1.47, 95% C, 1.10 to 1.97, compared with a mild grade. Older patients, age greater than or equal to 80 years, patients requiring long term oxygen therapy, or patients reporting previous ACOPT episodes had a higher mortality risk. A BMI between 25 and 29 kg M2 was associated with a lower risk interpretation. The Rome classification makes it possible to discriminate patients with a worse prognosis, severe or moderate, until a three-year (music) follow-up. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine high-dose inhaled nitric oxide in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure due to COVID-19. A multicenter phase 2 trial. Rationale: The effects of high dose inhaled nitric oxide on hypoxemia in coronavirus disease (COVID-19) acute respiratory failure are unknown. Objectives: The primary outcome was the change in arterial oxygenation pao 2 2 at 48 hours. The secondary outcomes included time to reach a pao 2 2 300 millimeters of mercury for at least 24 hours the proportion of participants with a pow 2 fo 2 300 mm of mercury at 28 days, and survival at 28 and at 90 days. Methods, mechanically ventilated adults with COVID-19 pneumonia were enrolled in a phase 2, multi-center, single-blind, randomized controlled parallel arm trial. Participants in the intervention arm received inhaled nitric oxide at 80 parts per million for 48 hours, compared with the control group receiving usual care without placebo. Measurements and main results, a total of 193 participants were included in the modified intention to treat analysis. The mean change in pow 2 vo 2 ratio at 48 hours was 28.3 millimeters of mercury in the intervention group and 21.4 millimeters of mercury in the control group. Mean difference, 39.1 millimeters of mercury, 95% credible interval, Cre 18.1 to 60.3 the mean time to reach a pow 2 fo 2 300 mm of mercury in the interventional group was 8.7 days, compared with 8.4 days for the control group, mean difference, 0.44, 95% 23.63 to 4.53. At 28 days, the proportion of participants attaining a pow 2 fo 2 300 mm of mercury was 27.7% in the inhaled nitric oxide group and 17.2% in the control subjects, risk ratio, 2.03, 95% CRE, 1.11 to 3.86. Duration of ventilation and mortality at 28 and 90 days did not differ. No serious adverse events were reported. Conclusions, the use of high-dose inhaled nitric oxide resulted in an improvement of POW2-slash-Fo2 at 48 hours compared with usual care in adults with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure due to COVID-19. <music> Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology Global Incidence and Prevalence of Eosinophilic Esophagitis, 1976-2022, A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Background and Aims Owing to 2018 Expanded Diagnostic Criteria for Eosinophilic Esophagitis, O, and thus a possible increase in diagnosis, previous studies on the global incidence and prevalence of O may need to be updated. We aim to describe global, regional, and national trends in the incidence and prevalence of O from 1976 to 2022 and analyze their associations with geographic, demographic, and social factors through a systematic review. Methods We searched the PubMed Medline, Embase, CINAHL, Google Scholar, and Cochrane databases from their inception dates to December 20, 2022, for studies that reported the incidence or prevalence of O in the general population. We calculated the global incidence and prevalence of O using pooled estimates with 95% confidence intervals, Cs, and performed subgroup analysis based on age, sex, race, geographical area, World Bank income group, and diagnostic criteria of O. Results. 40 studies met the eligibility criteria including over 288 million participants and 147,668 patients with O from 15 countries across the five continents. The global pooled incidence and prevalence of O were 5.31 cases per 100,000 inhabitant years, 95% C, 3.98 to 6.63. Number of studies, 27. Sample population, 42,191,506. And 40.04 cases per 100,000 inhabitant years, 95% c. 31.10 to 48.98, number of studies, 20, sample population, 30,467,177, respectively. The pooled incidence of O was higher in high income countries versus low or middle income countries, males, and North America versus Europe and Asia. The global prevalence of O followed a similar pattern. The pooled prevalence of O gradually increased from 1976 to 2022, 1976 to 2001, 8.18, 95% C, 3.67 to 12.69 versus 2017 to 2022, 74.42, 95% C, 39.66 to 109.19 cases per 100,000 inhabitant years. Conclusions The incidence and prevalence of O have increased substantially and very widely across the world. Further research is needed to evaluate the incidence and prevalence of O in Asia, South America and Africa. (music) Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Interstitial Eosinophilic Aggregates and Kidney Outcome in Patients with CKD Background Interstitial Eosinophilic Aggregates are observed in various kidney diseases, but their clinical implications remain unknown. We assessed the association between interstitial eosinophilic aggregates and kidney outcomes and further analyzed the association between blood eosinophil count as a surrogate for interstitial eosinophilic aggregates and the risk of kidney failure in patients with advanced CKD. Methods We analyzed datasets from two retrospective cohort studies, 1. The kidney biopsy cohort including 563 patients who underwent native kidney biopsy at Osaka University Hospital between 2009 and 2021 and 2. The retrospective CKD cohort including 2,877 patients with an EFER of 10-60 to mL per minute per 1.73 m2 referred to the Nephrology Outpatient Center at Osaka University Hospital between 2005 and 2018. Interstitial eosinophilic aggregates were defined as greater than or equal to 5 interstitial eosinophils in the high-power field on hematoxylin and eosin staining. This study outcome was initiation of KRT or greater than or equal to 40% decline in eGFR. Results In the kidney biopsy cohort, interstitial eosinophilic aggregates were found in 17% of patients, most frequently in those with diabetic nephropathy, 50%. Interstitial eosinophilic aggregates were associated with a higher rate of the composite kidney outcome after adjustment for clinical and histological variables, hazard ratio, three point six one. confidence interval, 2.47 to 5.29, p less than 0.001. Lasso revealed that blood eosinophil count was the strongest predictor of interstitial eosinophilic aggregates. In the retrospective CKD cohort, higher baseline and time updated blood eosinophil counts were significantly associated with a higher rate of KRT initiation and Cox proportional hazards models and marginal structural models. Conclusions. Interstitial eosinophilic aggregates were associated with a higher risk of a composite of KRT initiation or greater than or equal to 40% decline in <music> Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Patient survival with extended home hemodialysis compared to in-center conventional hemodialysis. Introduction More frequent and or longer hemodialysis, HD, has been associated with improvements in numerous clinical outcomes in patients on dialysis. Home HD, HHD, which allows more frequent and or longer dialysis with lower cost and flexibility in treatment planning, is not widely used worldwide. Although, retrospective studies have indicated better survival with HHD, this issue remains controversial. In this multi-center study, We compared thrice-weekly extended HHD with in-center conventional HD, ICHD, in a large patient population with a long-term follow-up. Methods We matched 349 patients starting HHD between 2010 and 2014 with 1,047 concurrent patients on ICHD by using propensity scores. Patients were followed up with from their respective baseline until September 30, 2018. The primary outcome was overall survival. Secondary outcomes were technique survival, hospitalization, and changes in clinical, laboratory, and medication parameters. Results The mean duration of dialysis session was 418 plus or minus 54 minutes in HHD and 242 plus or minus 10 minutes in patients on ICHD. All cause mortality rate was 3.76 and 6.27 per 100 patient years in the HHD and the ICHD groups, respectively. In the intention to treat analysis, HHD was associated with a 40% lower risk for all cause mortality than ICHD. Hazard ratio, HR, equals 0.60, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.45 to 0.80, P less than 0.001. In HHD, the 5-year technical survival was 86.5%. HHD treatment provided better phosphate and blood pressure, BP, control, improvements in nutrition and inflammation, and reduction in hospitalization days and medication requirement. Conclusion These results indicate that extended HHD is associated with higher survival and better outcomes compared to ICHD. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.